following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Matthew chapter 5 today, and as you can see on the screen, we're introducing a, a new study today, and so Lord willing, in the coming weeks, probably months, just to be honest, uh, we are going to be uh, dealing with what is surely the most famous and influential sermon that has ever been preached. And I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is recorded for us in Matthew 5-7. through And uh, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. I've, I've been uh, slowly preparing for this series now for a couple of months, and uh, so I spent a lot of time in the sermon. And, uh, and it's not hard when you really dig into it to see why this sermon has grabbed so much attention and, and had such a broad influence. You know, so for one, the sermon is packed with some very powerful and very famous uh, sayings of Jesus. So, so the Beatitudes come from the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, all of those things originate right here. And as well, uh, Jesus uses some, some very compelling, powerful illustrations. Salt and light. Uh, the wise man who built his house in the rock and the foolish man who built his house in the sand. Uh, those are memorable illustrations. And as well, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is just packed with, with wisdom and very foundational uh, instruction and commandments. So for example, uh, Jesus makes some, some really powerful corrections to hypocritical religion. I mean, the end of chapter 5 is, is just it's, it's powerful stuff. As well, he, he gives some important warnings about chasing wealth and about letting worry dominate our lives. He challenges us about the wrong type of judging and, and about spiritual deception. And, and all of it is just so well said and, and so compelling in, in how Jesus presents it. So there's a reason why Christians continually come back to these chapters as foundational biblical instruction and, and why uh, we teach it in Sunday school and, and all those things. And, and I think it's interesting to note that it's not just Christians who are loyal to God's Word that recognize the value of this. You know, Gandhi and all sorts of other people that, that have no loyalty to Christianity have recognized that this is a, a, an incredibly valuable and instructive section of God's Word. So I'm excited to see what God's going to do as, as we uh, dive into this sermon and, uh, and study it. And I hope that you'll read it on your own. So, so this week, I, I read it out loud. I just I was curious to see how long it would take me. And so I read it at a comfortable pace in 13 minutes. So it's not that long. You can read it uh, relatively quickly or listen to it uh, as you're driving or something like that. And, and as well, I hope that every week that you come, that you'll come uh, engaging your heart, uh, wanting to let God uh, do what He wants to do. And you know, some things that Jesus says in this sermon are going to cut. They're going to poke at some sensitive parts of your heart. But it's important. It's good. It's valuable. And, and so I'm excited to see what God's going to do. But, but of course, anytime, uh, anytime you, you dive into a section of Scripture like this uh, that is so foundational, there's bound to be controversy. There's bound to be uh, complications. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is not an exception to that. So today, what I want to do is I want to lay a, a broad foundation for the remainder of our study. And I want to address some of the controversies uh, that come up around the Sermon on the Mount 
and help us kind of get a, a broad overview of the main message that Jesus is going to give. So, so I'm going to warn you up front. This is going to be a little bit more of a nerdy sermon than normal. You know, probably all my sermons are kind of nerdy because I'm a nerd. And, uh, but, but this one's going to be especially nerdy. This will be a little bit different than normal. But as well, uh, we'll ultimately end today by, by getting to uh, some important application about Jesus' message in the sermon. So I want to deal with uh, several questions today. So the first question we want to answer is, what is the context for the Sermon on the Mount? And, and to answer that question, uh, let's read chapter 4, actually, verse 23, down through chapter 5, verse 2. It says there, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and, healed, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So, so I see four important answers in those verses about the context of the sermon. So first of all, uh, Jesus preaches this sermon early in his ministry. So if you scan back earlier in chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 tells of some of the earliest events in Jesus' ministry. So it begins with, with Jesus' uh, struggle with Satan in the wilderness, his, his temptation. Then it talks about the, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And then it tells about the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, now there are some other important events in, in the, the earliest stages of Jesus' ministry that, that Matthew doesn't record for us. But, but this is very early in Jesus' public ministry. He's just getting started. And, and so because of that, uh, a second very important issue to remember is that this is a time of tremendous popularity for Jesus. So chapter 4, verse 23 says that, that He is going everywhere, teaching and preaching in the synagogues. Jesus is having broad impact. And, and as He goes, He is healing all sorts of people. And of course, that creates a tremendous stir. And so, uh, verse 24 says that his fame went throughout all Syria. So it wasn't just the, 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 you know, a few communities in Galilee that were excited about Jesus. His fame had spread into Syria, another country. And then uh, it tells us in verse 25 that great multitudes followed him. And not just from Galilee. It says from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond the Jordan River. So, so, so Jesus here is attracting an incredible amount of attention. Now people are thinking, man, is this the Messiah? I heard this guy healed this person and he did this miracle and, and this teaching is just incredible. It's gripping. And so, so all sorts of people are coming up to Galilee to experience the ministry of Jesus. And, and, and we can kind of imagine how that would work. Because you know, we see in, in our society how you know, a celebrity will rise to fame and, and he's got some really, he's, he's a fascinating personality and maybe he's got some really interesting message. And, and so people just flock to, to get in on the show and, and, and to see what's going on and, 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 and to experience it all. And at this point in time, uh, there's no controversy around Jesus. 
So, so it's just excitement. It's just curiosity. Of course, we know that controversy is coming. And we know that Jesus will ultimately drive a lot of the crowds away. But at this point, there's just a lot of anticipation. A lot of excitement. And a third point we learn from these verses is that Jesus preaches this sermon on a mountainside in Galilee. So chapter 5, verse 1 says that, that Jesus has all these massive crowds around him, so, so he goes up on a mountain to teach his disciples. Of course, that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, now we shouldn't think of this as if you know, Jesus you know, is, is, is working his way up Mount Whitney, you know, and saying, if you want to hear me teach, you've got to climb Mount Whitney too. You know, it's not uh, some kind of, of intense climb up a, you know, a high mountain, so to speak. It's probably a fairly gentle slope uh, along the Sea of Galilee where he goes to teach. And, and he goes there uh, most likely because it provided a good context for him to teach, uh, where, where lots of people could see him and, and where lots of people could hear him. So he's on a mountainside. And then the final thing we learn is that he, the sermon is addressed to his disciples, though multitudes are present. So chapter 5, verse 1 says that Jesus sat down to teach, which would be the typical position of a rabbi who was instructing. And he is specifically here addressing his disciples. He wants to teach them about who he is. And, uh, and at this point, uh, at this point we, we shouldn't think of the disciples here as, as the twelve, all right? because Jesus hasn't actually called the twelve yet. Now, this is probably just a, a loose group of, of followers who had attached to him as, as some kind of mentor, rabbi, teacher, instructor, and they want to learn from him and follow him. So, so Jesus here, primarily, he sees the massive crowd, and he pulls his disciples aside to teach them. But of course, the crowds follow. And uh, if you look at chapter 7, uh, verses 28 and 29, it says at the end of the sermon, and so it was, when he had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. So, so um, the word translated people there in verse 28 is, is really better translated crowd. So, so the idea is, is, is that all these multitudes have probably followed Jesus up the mountainside, and they're there with him while he is teaching. So, so when you picture Jesus preaching the sermon, you can picture him on a hillside along the Sea of Galilee. He is at the height of his popularity. The people are excited to hear him. They're excited to see what he's going to say. Of course, they're probably thinking, is this the guy that's going to drive out the Romans and, and set up our, our kingdom? And so that's what they're wanting. But of course, Jesus doesn't give them a, you know, a feel-good political rally speech, does He? No, instead, He goes after their hearts. And He attacks them with, 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 with the truth of, of God's Word. And, and, and of course, chapter 7, verse 28 says that they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority. So they are amazed at what Jesus says and the power with which He says it. That'd be quite the day to be with Jesus, wouldn't it? To hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the context. Second question we want to answer today is, did Jesus truly preach the sermon? Now, now you see that question, and you're thinking, well, I know what you're going to say. 
Yes. So, so why are we even asking this question? Well, well, I raise this question today because, because if you read anything about the Sermon on the Mount, or, or you watch something on TV that, that is going to stray very far at all from, from an evangelical viewpoint, that you are not going to get a firm yes to that question. And so specifically, uh, liberal scholars, uh, they like to remind us that, that no one had a tape recorder when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, no one's sitting there, you know, putting it up to his mouth so that they can get every word he says, or there's not you know, a clerk sitting out there you know, doing her little thing, uh, writing exactly what Jesus wrote. So, so how could we possibly imagine that the Sermon on the Mount was accurately preserved for us? You know, they're going to mention, too, that Matthew didn't write the Gospel of Matthew for at least a couple decades. Uh, they're going to argue probably multiple decades un- until after Jesus would have preached. So, so how, could he, how could it possibly be accurately preserved? You know, something else they're going to mention is that or what they're going to argue is that instead what we have here is a hodgepodge of various sayings that Jesus said at different times and different places, and that, that, the, and that Matthew just kind of crammed them all together and, and acted as if uh, Jesus said all these things at one point in time. And, and so what do we do with that? Well, well I'm going to argue, as, as you would probably expect, that Matthew 5-7 through 7 is an abridged or shortened version of a single authentic sermon by Jesus. And the main reason why we know that this is one sermon is because Matthew clearly presents it as such. So in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus began to teach. And then in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus was done. So if Matthew just grabbed a whole bunch of sayings of Jesus, you know, and kind of put them together and, and, and acted as if it was a sermon... At best, uh, he would be misleading, and frankly, he would be a liar. And of course, that is a problem. So we need to take Matthew at his word, uh, and as well, I think we should reject those ideas by liberal theologians, because you know, the fact that Jesus repeats himself in other places does not mean that the Sermon on the Mount is not a single sermon. I mean, every preacher or teacher repeats himself often. I mean, I'm sure I say things over and over that you're like, We've heard that. Stop saying that. And you all remember your parents like, oh, here comes that speech. I've heard that one before. And you can quote it almost verbatim. And especially if you're an itinerant preacher like Jesus. You're preaching here. You're preaching here. You're preaching here. You're not going to invent something new to say every time you preach. You're going to say the same thing here that you say here that you say here. And so, you know, itinerant preachers do that all the time. If you listen to, if there are certain preachers you like to listen to, and you listen to them from this conference and that conference and this church over here, you hear them say the same thing over and over. So that is not a problem at all. So we should assume that this is one sermon, but then the question that still is there is, is well, how confident can we be that Matthew preserved an accurate record of what Jesus actually said? I mean, how would you do that? Well, and I think it's important to remember in, in response to that, that you know, for us, the skill of remembering oral traditions is not very important to us. Because we have tape recorders, and we have computers, and we have videos, so we don't need to remember what someone said. But it's a known fact that in ancient cultures, that was a big part of life. 
that preserving oral traditions was, was very normal and very important, and so they were much better at it than we are. I think it's also worth noting that just because Matthew wrote at least a couple decades after Jesus preached, that that doesn't mean that he didn't have some sort of written record that he leaned on as he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And I think ultimately, the ultimate reason why we can be confident that this is an accurate record of what Jesus said is because Matthew didn't write this on his own. We don't need an ultimately human explanation for how Jesus' words were preserved because the Holy Spirit inspired everything that Matthew wrote and the Holy Spirit ensured that He gave to us the Word of God. So Matthew 5-7 through is an accurate record of what Jesus said. Now, I do believe that Jesus probably said more. Because a 13-minute sermon is really short. Alright? And you don't need to make any snide remarks about how long I preach. Or anything else like that. You know, you're like, man, 13 minutes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wish pastor was like Jesus. Alright? But, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that he didn't only preach for 13 minutes. And, uh, and that he probably said a whole lot more. And, and Matthew has given us a condensed, uh, abridged version of what Jesus said. But still, it is accurate. And then a third question we need to answer is, how do I apply the sermon? Now again, you might hear that and think, well, what a silly, stupid question. Do what Jesus said. And for the most part, that is true. But there are, there are several uh, complicated issues of application in the sermon. And, and so there are a few different views that have popped up that, that raise a number of very important issues. So I think it's worth our time to just examine the various ways that people interpret the Sermon on the Mount. So, so the first view is that of the social gospel. And they claim that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be a roadmap to salvation and world transformation. I remember a few years ago, I don't remember what it was, I was watching some kind of national ceremony, national service, and they had some liberal pastor stand up and he read a long section of the Sermon on the Mount. And when he was done, he looked at his audience and he said, this is the gospel of our Lord. And so he viewed the Sermon on the Mount as the gospel. And the reason they make this claim is because chapter 4, verse 23 says that Jesus was going about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So so they're going to say that the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel of the kingdom. So they claim. That if everyone would just live by the Sermon on the Mount, then we could, we could transform the world. We could fix all the injustice, all the brokenness of society. Wars would cease. Everything would be great. You know, so, so this is the gospel of world transformation. It's, it's a gospel in their mind that is very much focused on this world, not on eternity. Now, it is true that if everyone obeyed the Sermon on the Mount the world would be a much better place, right? I mean, that would be incredible if everyone would live by what Jesus says. But it's pretty clear in the sermon that Jesus did not set out to provide a roadmap to transforming the world and fixing all the injustices in society. Because chapter 7 is pretty clear that Jesus assumed that most people were going to reject His message. I mean, He said that broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's where most people are going. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So Jesus did not have any ambitions to transform the world with this sermon. He is instead teaching his disciples how we should live in the midst of a hostile world. So that view will not do. A second view 
that's out there is the Anabaptist or the Mennonite view, and they view the Sermon on the Mount as a pacifist manifesto. So what they're going to do is they're going to highlight specifically uh, things like the golden rule. Uh, Do unto others as you would have them do to you, or highlight uh, Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek. And they're going to take those things to mean that Jesus is condemning all military service, all violence, and all sorts of self-defense. So we just need to, to lay down our defenses, and if we all just did that, then everything would be okay, and, and we would all come together, and we would have peace. Well, I doubt that view would be very familiar in this church, but it is out there. And, and we do, when we get to that passage about turning the other cheek, that is a, a very significant ethical section of Scripture that we do need to spend some time thinking about. But the biggest problem with this view is that just very simply, Jesus is doing a whole lot more here than teaching. I mean, he does talk a lot about reconciliation and peace in relationships, uh, but there's a whole lot more going on than just that. So a third view that's out there is the Lutheran view, and they view the Sermon on the Mount as an impossible standard that is intended to point me to Christ. Now, this is a very interesting view. That, that really does raise some, some very important points. So, so first of all, you know, they're going to note that Jesus never articulates the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. There, there's no mention of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's no mention of divine grace that, that forgives us of our sin and empowers us for eternal life. So, so, so instead, what, what, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is almost exclusively is rules, commandments, and laws. And, and so the Lutherans are going to argue that the basic purpose of the sermon is to point out how far we fall short of God's holiness so that we will run to the grace of God for salvation. Now, now there is an element of truth in that, right? You know, that, 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 that I can't live up to the standard because, you know, uh, the standard is really high. So, so look at uh, chapter 5, verse 48. Chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus says, You shall be perfect. And it's really, we should take that as a command. Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So actually, this week, I had a church, uh, someone who attends our church, uh, text me and ask, what do I do with that verse? Like, I can't be perfect like God is perfect. So, so the standard is really high. So, so the Lutherans have argued that, that this sermon is law. But, but it's not a law that I can have any hope of obeying. It's just there to show me my need of grace. So, so again, there's an element of truth in that that, that, that. that the sermon, I mean, God's law does show me that I'm a sinner, that I cannot measure up, and that I need divine grace. I need to be born again and I need God to empower me to do His will. But, but on the flip side, the New Testament consistently teaches that by God's grace, I can make progress in obeying God's Word. And, and everywhere in, in Scripture, it assumes that, that God does not just simply give me laws to point out how bad I am. God gives me laws with the expectation that I will obey them. You know, and there's no indication in the Sermon on the Mount that, that Jesus didn't sincerely expect us to do what he said. And, and really, the, the final nail in the coffin 
is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the last verse in the book of Matthew. Jesus is giving the Great Commission, and then He tells His disciples to teach the nations to observe all things that I command you. So, so Jesus expected us to obey His commands in the book of Matthew. So, so that's what we should do. All right, so, so that brings us to a fourth view, the view of covenant theology, that, that the Sermon on the Mount is directly applicable to the church. Now, this is a pretty simple view, and, and I'm pretty close to this view, all right? I'm very sympathetic to it. So, so most people who hold to covenant theology, and, and as well, a lot of dispensationalists are going to argue that Jesus is just simply providing an updated ethic. So he's taking the ethic that's laid out in the law, and he's updating it for the church. And so we should do what God says here. So I'm sympathetic, but, but I do think that this view is a bit of an oversimplification. So for example, the Beatitudes, they, they promise a number of physical blessings. Like the meek shall inherit the earth. And, and you can't just think that if I'm meek, God's going to give me a nation in this life. I mean, it's, it's, there, there's some, there, you know, it's just, we, we've got to be careful about some of those things. And, and there's other things like that. I think as well, uh, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is shaped by the experience of Jews who are living under the law and, and, and under all the Jewish traditions that had sprung up around the law at, at that particular time. So, so we live in a very different world from a Jew in Galilee in, in A.D. 30 or, or, whatever exactly, or whatever year it exactly was. So, so some of our applications are, are going to be a little bit different, and, and we've got to be careful in thinking about what God is saying for us in, in what Jesus says. So, so a fifth view is that of classical dispensationalism. And, and they're going to argue that, that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be a law for the millennial kingdom. So, so I don't know of anyone who holds this view, this narrowly at least today, but, but some of the old dispensationalists, uh, specifically C.I. Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Study Bible, uh, he believed that the Sermon on the Mount is not for the church, it is for the millennial kingdom that's coming after the tribulation. So, so it is not for us, it's for them. Uh, but the problem with that is, is that Jesus never says that. And, and Matthew never says that either. And Jesus said, teach them to observe all things that I command you. So, so I think that, well, I'm confident that, that we have to go further in, in how we use the Sermon on the Mount. So, so what do we do with all this and, and how, uh, how should we view the Sermon? Well, I think first of all, it is so important that we are always careful to read Scripture in its historical context, right? I mean, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you need to be aware of the fact that he is speaking to Jews in a time and place. And then understand that their context and your context are different. So, so we've got to do some work to bridge their context to mine. So, so with that in mind, uh, remember that the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to Jews living under the Mosaic Law. And that is evident everywhere in, in, in these chapters. I, I put a few references up there that that specifically mention things that relate to the Old Testament law. And it's not just that these people lived under the law. They also lived under all these Jewish traditions that had sprung up that surrounded the law. So, so Jesus is constantly referencing Jewish laws and Jewish traditions. So, so I, I think we can assume that, that if Jesus were instead preaching this sermon in, in AD 55, in the Roman church, 
it would have sounded a whole lot different because it's a different context. And if Jesus were teaching these principles to LifePoint today, it would sound different. So, so, so we need to be mindful of the fact that Jesus, and as well John the Baptist at this point in time, they are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So, so they are calling Israel to repent, to, to accept Him as their Messiah, to prepare for the kingdom. And, uh, and so He's calling them to the true heart of the Mosaic Law, to obey that. To, to, and the heart, the heart, of course, is mostly the same. I mean, there's, there's, you know, God's righteousness is His righteousness. But we just need to be mindful of the fact that there are differences. And Jesus especially wanted his Jewish audience to, to, to not focus on overthrowing the Romans. Because that's what they all wanted. They wanted Jesus to come in and conquer the Romans. They wanted a political rally. And, and, and yes, there's a political dimension to the kingdom that Jesus will someday establish. But Jesus here primarily focuses on the fact that, that what is far more important than driving the Romans out is that you get your heart right with God. And so he calls them to, to genuine godliness. And so that is important historical context. But with that, I think we also need to recognize that Jesus was preparing for the church age. And he understood that the law was almost obsolete. And it's pretty clear when you read through the sermon and other parts of the Gospels that, that Jesus wasn't just teaching people how to live under the law. So Matthew 16 and 18, he mentions the church. And in between, in chapter 17, there's an interesting account where, where the disciples are confronted about paying the temple tax. So there was a, a tax that they had to pay that, that was required for the upkeep of the temple. And, and Jesus says to Peter that, that, that we are members of a new kingdom, so, so we don't have to pay the temple tax. Though they do go ahead and, and turn around and, and pay it. But it just speaks to the fact that Jesus recognized that, that he lived in a time of transition where things were moving from the Mosaic Law to a new age. So, so, so we need to, again, be mindful of that. So, so in conclusion, uh, most of the Sermon on the Mount is directly applicable to you. All right, But, but you always need to be mindful of Jesus' context. And, and I would add that we shouldn't just be mindful of, of, of Jesus' historical context. We also need to be mindful of the context of, of, of all of God's Word. Because sometimes you, you can take a verse like, don't make oaths, all right? And, and not recognize what that means in the context of the rest of the Bible and, and really come up with a bad application. So, so we need to understand what Moses said, what Jesus said. We need to understand what Peter, James, and John and Paul said, and come to a complete understanding of how God would live based on the entire testimony of Scripture. So, so just be mindful of those things and, and be discerning as you read. Then the next question, and that raises this final question, well, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us then? And, and my basic summary of the message of the Sermon on the Mount, I've got a typo in here, which drives me batty. But basic summary of the message is that true religion transforms us from the inside out. True religion transforms us from the inside out. And that was a particularly important message for Jesus' Jewish audience. 
Because they lived in a pressure cooker of external conformity, right? I mean, you had to measure up to, you got the Pharisees walking around with their noses in the air, you know, looking down on everyone, and they're pushing everyone to be like they are. And so, and so religion in that culture was very much about what you did and how you looked. And, and so Jesus, and, 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 and we don't quite feel that same pressure. You know, in fact, we live in a culture where, where we value nonconformity. At least we call it nonconformity. It actually turns into conformity. Uh, but, but we want to be our own person, and we want to follow our own heart, and we want to be true to ourselves. That's what we say. So, so we might not feel the exact same pressure, but we all have the pride of life. We all want people to respect us. We all want people to think we're smart and cool and have it together. So, so that pressure to, to, to be religious for the sake of, of respect and, and the opinions of people is there for all of us. So, so Jesus is going to emphasize that true religion does not begin with what I do, but with who I am. And, and, and specifically, what, what matters is my heart before the Lord. And that I love Him and desire Him here first. Now, now Jesus is going to say it's not enough to just love Jesus on the inside. It's got to work its way out on the outside. I have to live consistent with what I believe and love. So the sermon has plenty to say about what I do. So, so sincere godliness must transform the outside by making it into the shape of Christ. But, but the order is very important. That, that godliness begins in the heart. And, and, and it works from the inside out. And, and, and I'd like to emphasize really five aspects of this that, that Jesus teaches in the sermon. So, so the first is, is that He's going to emphasize that true religion requires humility before God. And that's significant again in context because the Pharisees, there was not humi- much humility about the Pharisees, Right? They were very confident in their own righteousness. But Jesus prioritizes repentance that, that stems from a clear understanding that I am not righteous. God is holy, and I am anything but holy. So rather than strutting around with my nose in the air, talking about how wonderful and glorious I am, the Beatitudes teach that God's favor is on the poor in spirit the merciful, the meek, the peacemaker, and, and, and as well, the persecuted. So, so do you want to please the Lord? Do you want to enjoy His favor? Then, then Jesus says it all begins with humility before God. And I recognize that He is God, He is holy, and I am anything but. I am needful before God. And that is at the foundation of godliness. Second, uh, aspect of true religion is repentance for sin. So Jesus is very clear that humility before God must lead to repentance. And, and so while Jesus, he, he never articulates the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but chapter 7 in particular emphasizes that I need to repent. And I need to trust the Lord to, to, to do for me, or, or I, I need to be honest before God about my sin. And come to Him for grace. So so look at chapter 7. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. 
And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So so Jesus reminds us very clearly that that I don't work my way into glory by by doing great glorious deeds in the name of Jesus or, or by being righteous by the world's standards. No, salvation is rooted in acknowledging my sin and how I have offended a holy God. So, so if there's anyone here that has never repented before God, and you have never really recognized humbly and, and honestly before God that, that you are holy and I have broken your law and I need forgiveness, then, then I would urge you to do so today. Because really, the, the foundation of the Gospel, the foundation of Christianity is that fact that I have violated the law of God. I have rebelled against Him. And I cannot solve that myself. And then understanding from there that there is grace in the cross. So so if you have never received Christ that way, then I would urge you today to talk with us. We'd love to show you from God's Word how you can repent of your sin and how you can receive the, the grace that Jesus offers in the Gospel. And even if you are saved, which I trust most of us are, don't forget that repentance is not just something you do at the very beginning of your Christian life. It is a constant part of Christianity. You know, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And what's one of the things that Jesus says that we should pray? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So, so a daily discipline of my life. Is, is recognizing how I have sinned against God and saying, God, forgive me. And, and, and Lord, give me by Your grace uh, the ability to go forward. So, so repentance is, is essential to godliness. And then a third mark of true religion is a sincere commitment to godliness. Now, and I think, you know, to me, the most convicting aspect of the Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus just ruthlessly attacks our hearts. You know, you got the, the section at the end of chapter 5 where he gives all the, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he goes after our hearts. You know, then the next section, chapter 6, he says, you know, don't pray, don't fast, you know, all those things, just to be seen of men. He says, it's not enough that you pray. It's not enough that you fast. It's not enough that you are faithful to your spouse. No, by God's grace, you need to pursue a genuine love and a sincere commitment to God that resides down deep in your heart. So, so, so Jesus, Jesus is going to cut our hearts in this sermon. I mean, He's going to stick a knife in, in the sorest parts of, of your soul. And He's going to twist it. And it may not always feel good if you're, if you're really honest about what's there. But of course, we know that, that it's good. You know, it's like, 
I mean, it comes from, from a loving father. You know, it's like, you know, you probably all had a coach or a teacher in your life that, I mean, they could just beat you up. But it's like they're, you know, it's like they had their arm around you while they were shoving, you know, punching you in the gut, and you, you knew they were doing it because they loved you. And that's what Jesus is going to do in the sermon. He's going to beat us up, but he's going to do it out of love, and he's going to do it for our good. And so we need to pursue a sincere commitment to godliness. And then fourth, I'll just leave both of us up there, love for others. Love for others. So the Bible consistently teaches that loving God always leads to loving my neighbor. And, uh, and Jesus is going to say the same thing here. That I can't love God and be a, a selfish jerk. And, and really, what, something that he really emphasizes is the fact that I can't love God and not pursue reconciliation in the context of broken relationships. Jesus is really going to go after peacemaking in this sermon. And so, and so, we need to serve others. True religion always works itself out in loving other people. And then the final, uh, the final thing that he emphasizes... Ooh. Alright, sorry. The final thing he mentions is wise living. You know, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's amazing how it just oozes with wisdom. And, uh, you know, the longer I pastor, the longer I watch people make really wise decisions that lead to good ends, and people make really foolish decisions that lead to bad consequences, the more I I just really appreciate the wisdom of Scripture. That, That God's Word gives so many really helpful answers to life. And if we just listen to it and do it, it makes life go so much better. So, so Jesus is going to offer us a lot of help in this sermon if we will just simply listen to what he says and, and, and honor his word. So, so I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do through this study. And I fully expect that some weeks, again, God is going to do some painful surgery and, and you're going to read what Jesus says and you're going to say, ouch, you know, don't go there, Lord. But he's going to go there. And by the grace of God, I'm going to go there too. And, and, so, and so the sermon, and so in, in all that, we need to remember that this sermon is full of love. So, so I hope that, that you will trust the Lord and that you will want what God wants for you. That, that your prayer in studying the sermon will be the prayer of Psalm 139, verse 24. That the Lord would search you and know you. And, and that He would show you whatever wicked ways are in your heart, and that He would lead you in the way everlasting. By the grace of God, that's what we should desire. And we should anticipate the joy and the blessing that are on the other side of that convicting work of His Spirit. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study the Scriptures. Lord, we thank You that You and Your grace have given us Your Word. I thank You that Your Holy Spirit has preserved the Sermon on the Mount for us because we need it and and there is so much for us to learn. And so God, I pray that You would do a a deep work in our midst in the coming weeks and months. That Lord, You would show us our sin. You would show us our need of grace. And that Lord, You would lead us in the way everlasting. So teach us, grow us, and change us by Your Word. In Christ's name, amen.